0: Mobituaries, presented by Crystal Cruises, the world's most awarded luxury cruise line, offering all-inclusive voyages by ocean, river, yacht, and expedition. Discover a world where luxury is personal. Visit crystalcruises.com today. Okay, so we're boarding now. I'm on a city bus with author Amy hill to talk about a civil rights pioneer. So she was she was riding through this neighborhood, right? Yes, she was.
1: Transportation
0: was not integrated. And had she had trouble before? Pretty
1: much everybody had had some trouble in the past.
0: Now, I know you think you know who we're talking about here, but no, we're not in Montgomery, Alabama, and we're not talking about Rosa Parks in the 1950s. We're in New York City, and we're talking about the 1850s.
1: They tell her to get off. And she resists, yeah? She said no.
0: And I'm pretty sure you've never heard of this woman. Her mark on history has all but disappeared, and she's not alone. In this episode, we'll also tell you the story of the first black Major League Baseball player, and no, his name is not Jackie Robinson.
2: you got to rewind a few decades, you know, from 1947 back to 1884, actually. And we'll introduce you to the woman who ruled Hollywood 100 years ago.
1: At
3: several points, she was the highest paid director in uh, the industry. The highest paid male or paid, female. A man, woman, or child, as, as one uh, reporter put it. I'm Mo Rocca,
0: and this is Mobituaries. Mobituaries. This moment? The Forgotten Forerunners.
1: Just the other day, one of the fine citizens of our community, Mrs. Rosa Parks, was arrested because she refused to give up her seat for a white passenger.
0: That was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking about the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 touched off when civil rights icon Rosa Parks stood her ground by sitting. But another African-American woman struck her own blow for justice a full century earlier.
1: She's really the Rosa Parks of New York, and most New Yorkers, most Americans
0: have no idea. Her name was Elizabeth Jennings, and Amy hill wrote a book about her called Streetcar to Justice. Last summer, Amy and I retraced Elizabeth's footsteps around the once infamous lower Manhattan neighborhood known as Five Points. You may remember it was the setting of the Martin Scorsese film Gangs of New York. Ah, the Five Points, Murderer's Alley, Brickbat Mansion, the gates of hell.
1: I think it was the dirtiest, most disgusting place imaginable. I think if you think of the worst smell you've ever smelled and multiply by a thousand. Yeah, hold
0: might. on a second. Have you been on the sea train lately? <laughs> Amy's right. City life was especially filthy back then. The streets were covered in horse manure, with wild hogs running rampant alongside open sewers. No surprise, life expectancy was only 40 years old. Amy and I met up on a sweltering day— just like it was on July sixteenth, eighteen fifty-four, when Elizabeth headed to church to practice the organ with the choir,
1: she was wearing these long-sleeved uh, jacket over a long dress that went down to her ankles, um, with layers of petticoats and corsets and so on. Must have been miserable. You know,
0: I'm taking advantage of the fact that this is audio only. I'm wearing shorts and I'm still hot. In other words, Elizabeth Jennings is an upstanding, church-going woman, a schoolteacher no less. All she wants to do is board a horse-drawn streetcar, the public transportation of the day, with her good friend Sarah Adams. But certain rules got in the way. In New York
4: City, like most northern cities at the time, there was both de jure legal and sort of de facto Um, segregation and uh, discrimination.
0: Leslie Alexander is a history professor at the University of Oregon and has written about the Black experience in New York in the 18th and 19th centuries.
4: They had particular streetcars that were designated as colored streetcars. Now, a black person could ask
0: to board the cars
4: designated for white people, but... If any white person on that particular car objected to the presence of a black person, you, in theory, would be
0: ejected. Remarkably, we know exactly what happens that day from contemporaneous news accounts. Jennings is running late and the first car to arrive is for white passengers. There are empty seats, so Elizabeth climbs aboard, but the conductor says, hold it. You need to wait for the next car with your people in it. That other car does pull up, but it's full. Elizabeth isn't budging. She's bold (laughs) in a variety of ways. Here's Professor Alexander reading Jennings' own detailed account, published at the time in the New York Daily Tribune.
4: I answered again and told him I was a respectable person, born and raised in New York, did not know where he was born.
0: The conductor is an Irish immigrant.
4: That I had never been insulted before going to church and that he was a good-for-nothing impudent fellow for insulting decent persons while on their way to church. He then said I should come and he would put me out.
0: She does not mince words there.
4: All of those things were incredibly important messaging, right, in the 19th century to say, I was born in this country. As a result of my birthright, I have a right to be an American citizen and have a right to be treated as such, and I'm a respectable person.
0: Then things turn physical.
4: I told him not to lay his hands on me. He took hold of me, and I took hold of the window sash and held on. He pulled me until he broke my grasp, and I took hold of his coat and held on to that.
0: The conductor calls in a reinforcement. The streetcar's driver.
4: I screamed murder with all my voice, and my companion screamed out, You'll kill her. Don't kill her.
0: The two men have pushed Elizabeth down off the streetcar, but guess what? She climbs back onto that streetcar again. Unable to overpower her, the driver heads full speed to the nearest police officer. The officer doesn't listen to Elizabeth's plea. Instead, he forcibly pushes her off the streetcar and onto the ground.
1: She's really beaten up. Her clothes are torn, she's covered with bruises, dirt. Jennings refers to
0: the men as monsters in human form, but it turns out they messed with the wrong person.
4: Well, there's no question that Elizabeth Jennings came from an activist tradition. Both of her parents very heavily involved um, in the anti-slavery cause. Throughout her entire life, she would have been hearing all kinds of um, political discussions and debates taking place.
0: Hers was a prominent family. Elizabeth's father, Thomas Jennings, is believed to be the first African-American to hold a patent for an early version of dry cleaning. It made the family considerably wealthy, and Thomas did this in 1821, before slavery was fully eradicated in New York. That wouldn't happen until 1827. But the legacy of slavery in New York was still being felt decades later.
4: Probably the most significant and salient challenge that Black people in the North were facing was as the result of the passage of the Fugitive Slave
0: Act of 1850. Maybe the most despicable piece of legislation in our history, the Fugitive Slave Act mandated that runaway slaves be returned to their owners. It became the perfect pretext for abducting free Blacks from the North.
4: The North essentially became sort of open season for a process where black folks are being rounded up and kidnapped on the streets and sold
0: into slavery. I mean, it's hor- horrifying. Yes. All the more remarkable then that during such a precarious time for black Americans, Elizabeth Jennings and her father decided to sue the Third Avenue Railroad Company. Here's author Amy hill Harth.
1: And they passed a hat in the church. Everybody pitched in. And then they went to look for a lawyer.
0: Their first choice was unavailable. So the the lawyer that they do find has a name that's familiar to presidential history buffs. That's right. And this is how I found out about the Elizabeth Jennings story. You see, I have a thing for obscure 19th century presidents. All the guys between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. Lots of facial hair, usually from Ohio. One of them was knocked off by an anarchist, another by an aggrieved office seeker. If you've watched me on CBS Sunday Morning, you've probably seen me do reports on a few of them. Anyway, one day I was rifling through one of my presidential trivia books, because that's what I do on the weekends to unwind. And I read about our episode's heroine and her legal representation by a future, very obscure 19th century president. Chester Alan Arthur. Yes, our 21st president. And he was
1: 24 years old and he actually only been practicing law
0: um, for about six weeks. He's really wet behind the ears. He was. Arthur would go on to grow mutton chops that would humble any Brooklyn hipster. Quick side note, decades later when he was in the White House, he was accused of having actually been born in Canada, the original birther conspiracy. You can learn all about that in my story online. But back to this story. In spite of his youth, Chet Arthur was up to the task of defending Elizabeth Jennings. Arthur was an abolitionist, and he worked closely with her and her father on legal strategy. Instead of pursuing a criminal case, they decided to bring the suit to a civil court. With a civil case, it would fix the situation for everyone, not just find justice for her. So they weren't looking for a conviction, for assault. What they were looking for was change. That's right. So if Jennings sought damages and won, a new standard would be set for integrated transportation. The case was argued in Brooklyn before a jury of white men. Jennings' case was bolstered by eyewitnesses and her own first-person account. But perhaps just as important, before deliberations, the judge reminded the jury that according to statute, rail companies, and there were a bunch of them in New York City, were required to carry all respectable passengers, there's that word respectable again, who were sober, well-behaved, and free from disease. This language might sound antiquated to you, but it's the all that strikes me. The jury sided with Elizabeth Jennings and awarded her $250. The 3rd Avenue Railroad Company was found liable and moved quickly to integrate their cars. The other rail companies were put on notice that they could be sued as well. At what point is New York City's transportation system fully integrated?
1: Well, some historians say that that was the first major step. After the Civil War, there was legislation that was passed
0: that made it official. The case received national attention in anti-slavery papers. The New York Daily Tribune ran the headline, A Wholesome Verdict.
1: Was she celebrated for a while? Yes, she was, for about 25
4: years. It was tremendously significant.
0: That's Leslie Alexander again.
4: You know, in the 19th century, the idea of um, women of any race being involved in, in an outspoken way in political matters of any kind was extremely controversial. So for her to take a stand in the way that she did and then allow her story and her name to be associated with this very public case was a huge deal.
0: After the court case, Elizabeth Jennings led a rather private life, and her name slowly faded from history. She continued teaching and even opened the city's first black kindergarten. She also married Charles Graham. They had a son, but he died as a young child. Jennings' name briefly appeared in the newspapers again due to the political rise of Chester Allen Arthur, that once wet-behind-the-ears lawyer, was elected vice president in 1880. Then he became president upon the assassination of James Garfield. Elizabeth Jennings died on June 5, 1901. I didn't expect to find much, but there were at least a few short obituaries, Here's the New York Times with the headline, Aged Color Teacher Dead. Mrs. E.J. Graham was prominent in ante-bellum race troubles here. The item takes note that her whole life was devoted to the improvement of her race. Why don't people know her name?
4: She was just not a person who was sort of self-seeking or self-interested. She wasn't a person who was promoting herself or her story in that regard. So, you know, I think that's part of it. But I'll tell you honestly, I think on a deeper level, the primary reason we don't know Elizabeth Jennings' story is that it doesn't fit with the narrative of the, the story that we like to tell about the North. So in order to know about Elizabeth Jennings, you have to know that slavery existed in the North. (laughs) You have to know that slavery existed in the North for almost as long as it did in the South. You have to be willing to acknowledge that the legacy of slavery haunted the Black population in the North for generations. But we do have to, to be willing to sort of, you know, pull back the curtains and have an honest conversation.
0: So where are we?
1: We're at the corner of Pearl and Park Row in Lower Manhattan.
0: If you do visit the site of the Elizabeth Jennings incident, you won't find a monument or even a placard. The street corner is actually dedicated to IRA fugitive Joseph Docherty. But thanks to the persistence of some local schoolchildren, there is now an honorary street sign for her a few blocks away. Wait, what's up there? Ah, okay, it says, Elizabeth Jennings' place. Right. The day we visited, it was covered up under scaffolding. But those who know Elizabeth Jennings' story still hope that one day, this remarkable woman will finally earn a more prominent place in history out in the open.
1: What I would really love to see, my dream, is a statue.
0: Now, there is a statue commemorating baseball's great number 42, Jackie Robinson. But what about the player who made history years before him? Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries, the podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries, the book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line sports teams that threw in the towel for good, forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. The story of our next Forgotten Forerunner brought me to Toledo, Ohio. When I got into town, I was feeling a little peckish. What's the best thing about Toledo?
1: Well, Tony Paco's for number one.
0: And so I hit up legendary Hungarian hot dog joint Tony Paco's. No, this isn't an ad. I've just always wanted to eat there, ever since I was a kid watching M.A.S.H., and heard Toledo and Jamie Farr's Klinger character rave about the place. Hey, incidentally, if you're ever in Toledo, Ohio on a Hungarian side of town? Tony Paco's, greatest Hungarian hot dogs, with chili peppers, 35 cents. Tony Paco's is famous for its buns. The walls of this restaurant are covered with hot dog buns autographed by all the luminaries who've eaten at Tony Paco's ever since Burt Reynolds started the tradition in the early 1970s. Bob Hope, Patti LaBelle. Okay, so Walter Mondale's right next to Tiny Tim. Don Shula. Oh, there's Debbie Reynolds. Penn and Teller signed the same bun. Oh, I love Oreo Speedwagon. A lot of the groups like to share the buns, so. That's manager Frank Petersburger. They've got plenty of Franks here, but surprisingly, no burgers. Even though the food is delicious, Tony Paco's isn't the legend I'm here to profile. I'm in Toledo to learn about the first African-American man to play Major League Baseball. And no, it's not this guy.
3: 1947, it was. The Brooklyn Dodgers, Ebbets Field. Jackie Robinson given the challenge by Dodger owner Branch Rickey, and he accepted.
0: Jackie Robinson is most certainly not forgotten. When he walked out onto Ebbets Field to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, he changed history. But technically speaking, he wasn't the first according to this plaque right outside Toledo's minor league ballpark. here we go. Moses Fleetwood Walker. In 1883, Walker joined the newly formed Toledo Blue Stockings and became the first African-American major league ballplayer when Toledo joined the major league-sanctioned American Association the following year. Now, this deserves a holy Toledo.
2: And here on this is considered Moses Fleetwood Walker Square. That's
0: Rob Worsinski, the communications guy for the current minor league team here, the beloved Toledo Mudhens. MASH fans may remember that Jamie Farr wore a
2: Mudhens jersey from time to time on the show. But back to Moses. When you ask people who is the first man of color who played the top flight pro baseball in America, everybody will say, you know, Jackie Robinson. But in order for a color barrier to be broken, one had to be set up in the first place. And it was Moses Fleetwood
0: Walker, whose mere presence on the diamond, invited the backlash that would bar black players from baseball for decades afterwards. Moses Fleetwood Walker was born on October 7, 1856 in Ohio, and played baseball at Oberlin College and at the University of Michigan. Before long, he was playing for the minor league Toledo Blue Stockings as the team's catcher, barehanded in those days. Soon after, Toledo's team got promoted to the American Association.
2: And at the time, in 1884, the American Association was top-flight pro baseball in America. While there were other black
0: players who joined team rosters, including Walker's own brother, Moses was the first. But there were no celebrations around this milestone. Just like Robinson would later on, Walker faced intense racial bigotry. There were also threats of lynching. His own pitcher ignored his signals. Walker couldn't have been all that surprised. Just the year before, future Hall of Famer and Chicago player Cap Anson unsuccessfully protested Walker's participation in the game. Moses Fleetwood Walker's time in the majors was short. During his time with Toledo, he batted 263 with only 152 at-bats.
2: As a catcher in, in the 1880s, baseball was a very dangerous position to play. And actually, he ended up having uh, a series of injuries that season where he only played in a fraction of the games.
0: Toledo released him that same season. Walker went on to play in other leagues— While catching for the Newark, New Jersey Little Giants, he was paired with an African-American pitcher named George Washington Stovey. In 1887, they were set to play against Chicago and Cap Anson. This time, Anson flat out refused to play if the black team members were put on the field. Newark gave in to his demands. Soon after, baseball officials across the board decided not to sign any more black players. The color line had been drawn. Post-baseball, Walker held a variety of jobs, but eventually got in trouble with the law. After stabbing a man to death during a drunken racial altercation, he was acquitted. He did end up in jail later on for mail fraud. At the same time, the injustices he'd experienced inspired him to get angry and political. He wrote a book advocating black emigration to Africa. He had some success in business, but when he died in 1924 at the age of 67, there was barely any acknowledgement. But some proud Ohioans are trying to change that.
4: Saturday is Moses Fleetwood Walker's birthday,
1: and... Thanks to a new state law, he'll be honored on that day every year.
0: Toledo is doing its part to keep his name alive. At the ballpark... Oh my God, it's a Moses Fleetwood Walker bobblehead. And he's right next to Jamie Farr. He's between two different Jamie Fars, And just across the street at a bar called Fleetwood's. And it's not named after Fleetwood Mac. All right, so we're entering Fleetwood's tap room. I mean, this looks like a pretty serious place for draft beer, yeah? 48 different types on tap. Oh, there's his picture. There's yeah. a big picture of Moses Fleetwood Walker. And once people know the story behind the face, they're impressed.
1: Yeah, that is incredible.
0: I always thought like, Jackie Robinson was the first, but that's pretty cool. Go, Moses! You can't help but think, he died, I'm
2: guessing, not knowing that he would ever be acknowledged as as special or important. You know, it really was a guy who just loved the game of baseball and he wanted to play it. Moses Fleetwood
0: Walker and Jackie Robinson bookends to a 63-year-long journey. Baseball researcher Larry Lester may have put it best when he wrote, while Walker failed to lead his people to the promised land, Robinson delivered his people. Both men wrestled with Jim Crow. Fleet bruised his knuckles and lost the early rounds. However, Jackie later bloodied his nose and won the fight. Next up, the woman who ran Hollywood, 100 years ago. Now let's travel back to the earliest days of Hollywood, somewhere between 1910 and 1920, To the story of one of silent filmdom's most prolific, yet almost completely forgotten directors. How much does this historical amnesia bother you? I mean, it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating. And film historian Shelley Stamp is here to set the record straight.
3: One critic at the time talked about the three great minds of early Hollywood, two of whom will be familiar to most people who don't know anything about early cinema. D.W. Griffith and Sussabee DeMille. And the third great mind... Was Lois Weber?
0: Not Lewis, Lois Weber. She was the first American woman to direct a feature film, a 1914 adaptation of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. She was also one of the stars. This all took place before movies even had sound. Shelley Stamp wrote the book Lois Weber in Early Hollywood. She was the highest-paid director in uh, the industry.
3: The highest-paid male highest or paid, female. A man, woman, or child, as, as one uh, reporter put it. She was respected. She negotiated very lucrative contracts when she formed her own studio. So you can see she was right up there with names that that we associate with, with the fathers of American cinema uh, at the time. And, and their legacy endures, and hers does not.
0: Last year, a mere 3% of studio films were directed by women, and pay inequity is a persistent issue. But in the Hollywood of 100 years ago, Lois Weber was one of the most respected and highest-paid directors. I know, it's like I'm describing some mythical time and place, like Camelot, that just poof, disappeared. I mean, did this really happen?
3: Well, I think the first thing to emphasize is that Yes, Weber was the most prominent female director during this time, but there was lots of other female filmmakers during this time, right? She wasn't a unicorn. She wasn't an anomaly. And the early years of the industry were open to many people, right? When film began in the early decades of the 20th century, it became really popular really fast. So there was an incredible need for movies.
0: I mean, it sounds like a land rush or something,
3: <laughs> right? No, yeah, seriously, yeah. Th- this is open terrain. And, you know, once the industry solidified in L.A. around 1913, L.A. became an incredible magnet for women in particular.
0: And Lois Weber was one of those women. She was born in Allegheny City, Pennsylvania in 1879 and started off as an accomplished pianist. She then moved on to the theater as an actress, and that's where she met her husband, Phillips Smalley. He started working in the movies first. But she very soon joined him, and they worked together as a collaborative team. She
3: wrote the scenarios, they acted together on screen, often playing husband and wife or romantic partners, and then they co-directed.
0: Who is leading home here?
3: Initially, they're billed as the Smalley's, and they're billed as a couple. But within four or five years... Weber is clearly um, the dominant creative
0: force. But as Shelley told us early on, Weber was not a unicorn. and wasn't even the first in her field. In fact, the actual first woman to direct films, really one of the first filmmakers, period, was Alice Guy Blachet of France. We're talking about the 1890s. She eventually opened a U.S. studio in New Jersey with her husband right around the time Weber was getting her own start. I don't think it's any exaggeration
3: to say that women were at the beginning of the formation of
0: film language. Here is an article, August 4th, 1916, Lois Weber, star of first magnitude from the Nashville, Tennessean. I mean, the middle of the country, you know, it's surprising. It's not variety. It's, it's not a trade journal. Lois Weber ranks with the greatest directors in the profession and whose success confutes any argument of women's inability to fill posts in a man's Field. I mean, she was a very important figure. Weber was also prolific. She directed over 100 short films. And in one year alone, when she was Universal's top director, she wrote and directed 10 feature-length films.
3: This is an extraordinary productivity. I can't really even imagine. I think by contemporary standards, it's
0: impossible to imagine. I mean, this, these days, you know, you wait for your favorite director to make a movie once every three years.
3: Well, you know, the the reporters that saw her on set during these years, they talk about how how decisive she was, how in command she was, how she had her script in her hand, and she was issuing orders, and everybody would come to her for every little detail about wardrobe, about set, about everything. I mean, I think
0: she just worked incredibly hard. She's prolific. Is she innovative?
3: So she's not a cookie-cutter director. She's not a director that's prolific because she's churning out the same thing again and again and again. She takes on all of these very controversial social issues of her day. She's known as this director who took on birth control and poverty and uh, religious hypocrisy. But equally important, I think, is her visual storytelling, which
0: is extraordinary. One of Weber's most popular early short films is called Suspense. It's from 1913. What she's doing is
3: adapting of what at that time would have been a really well-known formula uh, called The
0: Last Minute Rescue. Basically, Liam Neeson movies.
3: <laughs> yes, yes, the early Liam Neeson
0: <laughs> movies. This is pre-taken.
3: <laughs> right. And so it's, it, by 1913, by the time she takes it on, it's a very well-known formula. Uh, she, she gives her film a generic title to tell us that she's taking on this formula and that she is going to
0: better the master at his own game. Shelley and I watched the film together. It's only 10 minutes long. And let me tell you, suspense is gripping. And what's happening here?
3: One of the hallmarks of The Last Minute Rescue is that you have the woman on the phone with police or her husband, and often the phone line is cut. Uh, And so that cross-cutting back and forth of the phone call is a key element of suspense. What Weber does is she puts the three elements together in the frame.
0: Yes, I see it. The screen is split in three. There's the wife at home on the phone, the husband at work.
3: And the intruder coming further and further into the house, right? Sawing the phone line, peeking through the door. So we see all three <gasps> elements at once. And there he is, looking right at us.
0: A tramp is prowling around the house. And he's good. The bad guy's good in this. And she's on the phone, and that's Lois Weber playing the woman.
3: She wrote it, she starred in it, and she's directing
0: it. How did Lois Weber? Present. If she were to walk in here, would you think, well, there she is, that's a groundbreaker, or she's a radical? Absolutely not. No, she had,
3: that's well, what I think is really interesting about her. Her persona was that of a, a kind of very dignified, um, married, white, middle-class woman. Um, she really presented herself that way. But I think that persona was a way for her to tackle the issues that
0: she tackled. She describes herself as a missionary yeah. in, in several places that I've seen. Well, she took that description very seriously. Early in her
3: career when she was pursuing music, she was involved in uh, evangelical work in New York, and she really saw cinema. as uh, She said, it's, it's a medium where I can preach to my heart's content.
0: One of the issues she tackled on film was birth control. In 1916, Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in America. That same year, Weber directed a film called Where Are My Children, which was considered so controversial that Universal prefaced the film with a big full-screen warning to parents not to let their children watch the film unsupervised. The studio also defended the film's subject matter by pointing out that birth control had been in the news. Fair warning to this audience, though, the film's point of view has not aged well at all. Her take
3: on legalizing contraception is very mired in the eugenics of the period. So she's making a case for legalized contraception for largely for um, women living in poverty and for immigrant populations. So that's sort of classic eugenics argument, right? And that's one half of the film. The other half of the film is vilifying Wealthy, privileged white women who repeatedly use abortion to avoid um, pregnancy.
0: They're not propagating the right
3: stock. Absolutely. They're not propagating the right stock. Uh, And so the the reproductive politics of this film are pretty distasteful from a, a contemporary point of view, right? You know, we can't really shy away from that fact. But they were relatively typical of the time.
0: Lois Weber was not part of some fringe. No, no. Now, Lois Weber didn't earn recognition just for her directing. Just when I thought nothing else would surprise me, I learned about her political career. In 1913, famed Hollywood director Lois Weber gained national attention for another role. She was mayor of Universal City. Yes, Universal City the home of Universal Studios. Any family that's been lucky enough to take a trip to Los Angeles, and we went as a family in 1980 when I was in the fifth grade, hopefully took the Universal Studios tour where you see the psycho house and, you know, Jaws comes up and you think it's going to bite you. What they don't tell you on that tour, the city once had a mayor, a female mayor, seven years before women gained the right to vote nationally. What was this about? Was this a big Hollywood publicity stunt?
3: Kind of, but it was an important publicity stunt, right? Universal City imagines itself as a place where work and life are combined, right? That making motion pictures is so fun that it's it's a community. You live there and you work there together. And so part of that is having a mayor. But Weber runs on an all-female ticket with other women, other Universal stars running as district attorney and police chief. And And some of the publicity was really negative, right, about... Women taking over the you know Universal City and the Amazons,
0: um, the Amazons <laughs> and you know they hate men and all all this sort of stuff. Now it gets a little complicated because Weber didn't win this election, but the guy who did left the studio six months later and she took over the job. A largely ceremonial post,
3: really. I don't think it had any real function. But I think it was an important ceremonial post in that it it demonstrated to the world that Universal was led by a woman.
0: So why don't we know Lois Weber's name? What happened?
3: I think there's a whole bunch of complicated things that happen with her decline. Once we get into the 20s, once we get into the height of the jazz age, entertainment and Hollywood in particular shifts to more escapism.
0: Lois Weber doesn't do escapism.
3: And she doesn't do escapism. And she's out of step. But there's a bunch of other stuff that's going Uh,
0: on. Larger forces at play that she can't possibly buck. Yes, yes. Which
3: are? Well, what happens is by the early 20s, the movie industry is incredibly profitable. So so guess what? Power consolidates.
0: I'm imagining like a bunch of cigar chompers, like guys (laughs) like the Monopoly man coming in and going, all right, all right. All right, ladies, step aside, because now this is getting serious. There's big money here, and this is a man's job.
3: That is basically what happens. I mean, the studios, in order to buy up all these theater chains, had to borrow a lot of money uh, from Wall Street. And in in doing so, they sort of bought into a a corporate culture, which was highly male. And as a result... um, disvalued, forgot about female filmmakers. So, and it happens really fast. You know, by the late 20s and early 30s, when the first histories of Hollywood are being written, there is no mention of Lois Weber or any of the female filmmakers. It's all about the female stars. It's all about Pickford and Swanson. Great. But they are forgotten very, very fast in, in a sort of effort to, as you say, legitimate the industry. You know, step aside, ladies. We're, you know, we're going to make this very profitable industry legit.
0: You could say women in Hollywood went the way of silent films. The Jazz Singer premiered in 1927, and talkies became all the rage. In the following decades, women directors were the exception to the rule. There was Dorothy Arzner. She was a big deal in the 1930s and 40s. Then in the 1950s, Hollywood actress Ida Lupino, you know her from crossword puzzles, moved on to directing films and later television.
3: And to this day, female filmmakers are told, well, it's never been done before. You're going to have to reinvent the wheel. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, I don't i don't think a, a woman can direct a big budget film. I don't think a female lead can carry a picture. I don't think a film about so-called women's issues can be successful. These arguments were won 100 years ago. And yet we're still fighting about them because we've forgotten.
0: It's a lot easier to imagine something as possible if you know it's happened before.
3: Absolutely. That's why history matters.
0: <laughs> we talked about the forces that made it difficult for Lois Weber. Did she retire at one point? What did she do? She did
3: not retire, to her credit. Um, she made her last film in 1934, which was her one and only sound picture. She took a boatload of generators to Kauai. She shot the first film on location on Kauai,
0: <laughs> I Which is can't where even, Jurassic Park was shot. I yeah.
3: can't even imagine doing that. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. So she that was her last film in 1934. She died five years later in 1939. And in those intervening five years, she continued to write scripts. She continued to try to get films made. She never gave up, even in an industry that was, became very inhospitable
0: to women. Just like we did for Elizabeth Jennings and Moses Fleetwood Walker, we tracked down the newspaper coverage of Lois Weber's passing. She didn't get a ton of ink in the major papers, with one exception. A big front-page item in the Los Angeles Times, penned by famed gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Hopper paid tribute by writing, "'I don't know of any woman who has had a greater influence upon the motion picture business than Lois,' anyone who has helped so many climb the ladder of fame, asking for nothing but friendship in return. Hopper added, I have a feeling she wasn't sorry to leave this world for a better one. Shelley Stamp hopes for a better legacy for Lois Weber. I feel confident that
3: over the long haul, the histories of Hollywood will be rewritten to feature her and all of the other women that were active at the beginning in the industry. But the more films that come out and the more textbooks that get rewritten, um, the more attention that's paid to her, I
0: I think we can correct this amnesia. These are the stories of just three forgotten forerunners, the pioneers before the pioneers. But in any story of firsts and forerunners, you've got to be careful. We talked about Elizabeth Jennings as the Rosa Parks of New York. Parks is one of the most famous symbols of the civil rights struggle. But nine months before her arrest, a woman named Claudette Colvin did the very same thing. And as far as Moses Fleetwood Walker, well, baseball researchers recently came across the story of William Edward White. He played one major league game in 1879 for the Providence Grays. White was actually a former slave, but lived his free life as a white man. So was he really the first? I don't know. Maybe proving who was first isn't as important as we think. Maybe it misses the point that all these people, whether they were first, second, or 102nd, had guts and made things at least a little bit better for the people who came later, sometimes much later. Of course, that depends on us remembering their stories. Next time on Mobituaries, the unforgettable Audrey Hepburn. Were you aware that the day of your inauguration... Audrey Hepburn died. No. You didn't know that? No. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobit. Be sure to rate and review our podcast. You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter, at moraka. For more great content, including photos of our forerunners, please visit Mobituaries.com. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you're getting your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Megan Marcus. Our team of producers also includes Gideon Evans, Kate McAuliffe, Megan Dietry, and me, Mo Raka. It was edited by Ashley Cleek and engineered by Dan Dazula. Indispensable support from Genius Dinesky, Kira Wardlow, Zach Gilchrist, Richard Rohrer, everyone at CBS News Radio, and Frank Petersberger at Tony Pacos. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries couldn't live.